I really felt I needed just on preaching, so sorry that you're getting me three weeks in a row. Um, and I, that's not an apology. I just felt I had to say it. Um, but we've been going through the Psalms, and I don't know for you guys, but for me, even though I've been teaching on it, and Ryan has taught, and the other elders are going to be teaching throughout August, and Bruce is going to get a slot, and we're going to be looking at Psalms. It's so good to go just to the Word of God, line by line, and, and dig out of it. I think it feeds, it feeds us. And I, I hope in this time that this is actually teaching all of you how to actually read the Bible. Because you shouldn't rely on a Friday message. Friday messages are great. And they can help you. But you need to have the sustained walk with God. The God of the universe. And I spoke last week of a guy who was learning how to pray in his old age. And he, he said he just used to imagine that Jesus was sitting in a chair in front of him. And I feel that that's, that's all that the Psalms are. And it's sometimes, and it's, we have to learn how to be honest before Jesus. He's not afraid of our big questions. He's not afraid of our doubts or our disappointments. And he, he, will, he will comfort us in those moments. And sometimes there's going to be mystery around those moments that you don't understand. You want God to do something. You want God to move, but he doesn't move. Then we just learn to rest in him like we did this morning. And uh, yeah, so Psalm 62. I want to ask you a question. Has anyone had, ever had in their moments had a single focus where nothing can deter you from that focus? Whether it's exercising. I just want to give you an update on my gym routine, okay? Uh, I just thought it'd probably be a good thing since I'm accountable to a couple of you. I trained with Johan, the beef guy there. And um, he, he pushed me and he hurt me. But it was a good thing, and I couldn't walk for two days. But I feel like I'm getting, I'm getting to the point where I'm starting to get focused on exercise again. I'm saying no to food. Thank you, Jesus. Who clapped there? Leaf. Um, they're like, we're tired of you being chubby, Dan. It's time to, time to drop it. Uh, you're in front of us more than anyone else. <laughs> And, um, and I feel like there's focus, and I've had moments in my life where I've been absolutely focused. I was involved in water polo. It's the, kind of the only sport that I was relatively good at. Uh, for those of you from South Africa, I played first team, which was quite a big deal. Like you get a little thing on your blazer, and you walk around the school like you're cool. And um, I played in the water polo team, but there was nothing that could deter me from water polo. I'd wake up in the morning at, in, in grade 10, I was 16 years old, I'd a kilometer of swimming. I'd get after school. I'd go, I wasn't a great swimmer. That's why they made me goalkeeper. Um, and uh, I used to go swim, and then in the afternoon go play water polo, have a break, eat some food, then go play water polo in the evening again against Springboks. I broke my nose four times. I was committed. I was at a single focus. I left school, and I started eating pies, <laughs> and that became my single focus. And uh, I never, because the thing is, when you're in school. You can eat what you want and you don't put on weight because you're exercising, you're burning like 2,000 calories plus a day because you're doing all the swimming and running and touch rugby and, and all of these things and you're active. You leave school and you think you can eat the same amount. It doesn't work like that. In my school, we used to have a thing where you used to take a pie, break it in half and stick it between two rolls. Who else did that? Who's from Durban, South Africa? Yeah, that, I don't know if that's a thing, but it was unbelievable. Go try it this afternoon. Go to get a Pyman's pie and break it in half, stick it in two rolls, it'll change your life. But the point of that is, is that it's high in carbs. 
And so I went from a guy who was weighing 75-ish, and I was slim. I can't even remember stepping on the scale and ever being 75, but I was about that at the end of high school, and then I, I packed it on, and I remember seeing a friend, and I don't know if he's here today, Jared, are you here? I saw him about two years after school, and he goes, wow, Dan, you used to be thin, eh? Anyway, I had a single focus. I want to tell you another, about another single focus. I had single focus in, in, in getting my wife. And I've uh, come on now. And uh, for those of you who are single, guys and girls, I, I want to talk to guys for a second. Single dudes, I'm going to start looking at you. There's one in the corner there. There's one there. Uh, you need to have some focus now. Seriously, like, start asking girls out. It's, it's not a bad thing. It's healthy. It's healthy to date, okay? But just date and don't mate. Um, that is always the key. Uh, it's just get to know one another and then marry, okay? And um, I had a single focus in, in finding my wife. Uh, and we were good friends. We, we were best friends. And all of a sudden, she, she held my hand. And, uh, and I was like, what is happening here? Single focus. Little did we know her dad would not be keen on me ever getting together with her. Um, now he loves me. I think I'm his favorite child. I've said the story before. But um, there was a point where he did not like me. But I, we had to have single focus. And, and it was a painful time in our lives because we used to just sit down like, and we were like, should we just give up on one another? And we didn't. We carried on waiting. We had a single focus. Her brother-in-law also had to wait seven years for Bianca, Starla's sister. Now, there's a different story and circumstances, but at 13 years old, around there, God spoke to him and said, you're going to marry Bianca. And I remember being on staff with Bianca. We were probably about 19, 20. She used to come and hide behind me. Hopefully, they're not going to listen to this recording. I doubt they will. Um, she used to come and hide behind me. She says, do not let me sit next to Mark. I just, I can't stand him. Like, and it was like, and then all of a sudden, it, it flipped. And for seven years, he had a single focus. I remember getting up in the morning. I lived on the church property that he, where he was at. He'd be praying there five in the morning. We think he's being spiritual. I guarantee he was just praying for a change of heart of Bianca. That's like, that was his only prayer. But he had a single focus. And at 21 years old, if I'm right, 21, 22, they got married. Single focus. And I want to just talk and bring that into a spiritual aspect. It is spiritual. But this is what David's talking about. And I want to lay a foundation of the first, first, second, first and second chapter because I think it opens up the rest of this chapter. But if you look at uh, Psalm 62, it says, To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, which is one of the worship leaders of the day, a psalm of David. Now, most commentators say that this psalm was written by David from Jeduthun, who used to take maybe the poem that David wrote, music to it, and sing it in the congregation. But it was sung at a moment when his son Absalom took the kingdom away from David. But David wrote this psalm when his, when his son Absalom had taken his kingdom away from him. Now imagine that. David, okay, David did a lot of things right, but he also didn't do a lot of things. He wasn't the best dad in the world. I don't think he ever confronted his sons. You can see that a lot of his sons just weren't the greatest, and they, they fought against him, they rebelled against him, and, and uh, the whole bunch of things happened. But he, imagine that moment of betrayal. Where you're sitting there and you're like, oh, my son has just taken my kingdom from me. And he doesn't go, and the amazing response of David, if you go read, I think it's in 2 Samuel, is that he just goes, God is my defender 
And I'm going to look to him because he's going to defend me in my time where I've been betrayed by my own, my very own son. Now, David was so incredibly gracious where he told the, the, the commanders of the army, he says, find Absalom when eventually they t- took back the city, but do not kill him. Anyway, one of his dudes did kill him and it was a, a bit of a disaster and obviously he mourned over his son, etc. But he had this moment where he was totally, totally betrayed and then he comes to the psalm. And most commentators believe he wrote it at that time. And he says this, verse 1. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Word that could be rescue, could be victory. He alone, say he alone, is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. And then it says in 3 and 4, it says, How long will all of you attack and batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They're only plan to thrust him down from this high position. They take, uh, sorry, they take pleasure in falsehood. They're blessed with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Basically, he's just talking about his enemy there. But I want to just break up a few words here. So if you're taking notes, you can write down, number one, for God alone. Having a single focus in our lives. Having a single focus on the God of the universe who loves you. And this morning was just such a sense of God, the King of all, whether you're skeptical about this or not, you've come in and you want to learn about Christianity, is that the God of the universe loves you. It doesn't make sense, like I said last week, God is everywhere, all-powerful, all-knowing, all the time. So he could be speaking to me about something, speaking to you about something at exactly the same time and talking about two different things. God is utterly omnipresent, omniscient, and... Omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. He means he's all-powerful. It says, for God alone. What David was saying is that his faith is in God alone plus nothing else. And how often in our lives do we add extra stuff to God? We think we're going to help God on what, in, in being God. And I want to talk a little bit and lean, again, just back onto this, the utter sovereignty of who God is. That he has a plan that he's working out. He is a father that looks over the whole of creation and from beginning to end he's out of time and he knows the best for you. And sometimes there's only the only response that you can have in your life is for God alone. And put him first and honor him first. Psalm Exodus 4, I'm going to look at the word God. And I think... We can have so many views of who God is, but the Bible reveals who He is. From Genesis to Revelation, there's, uh, and it's, and in particular, Jesus reveals who the Father is. It's it's, it's almost sometimes He got a bit misinterpreted by the, by the, by the priests and the prophets of the day that He actually had to come in human form and dwell amongst us to show how, what His heart is all about. For God alone says this in Exodus 34, you can take it down, 4 to 7. The Lord, the Lord, The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. Amazing. This is Old Testament. And forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. It's amazing that when people argue against the Bible, they go, oh, well, look how God was in the Old Testament. He basically killed everyone. God's, when he revealed himself to Moses, is this what he says about himself? Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes their children and their children for the sin uh, of the parents for the third and fourth generation. It's saying that God is good, but he's also justice. He's a God of justice. He knows, and, and I'm going to talk about how his justice was, was poured out upon Jesus and how Jesus took all this, the, 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 
almost the, the debt of sin on himself and died in our place. But when God reveals himself, he reveals himself as compassionate and a gracious God. And I want to paint a picture of who God is. Because A.W. Tozer says this, a very famous quote, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I want us to just sit in that. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, David would have read that Exodus. He would have had to learn the first five books of the Bible off part. He would know that scripture. And he would lean on that part of who God is and says, God, you're gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, which means that he has more than enough love. God is love. God abounds in it. He, his, his love is able to change absolutely anything in this universe. And I believe David learned that in a place of silence. He learned who God was when he silenced himself. If you think God is a harsh, harsh taskmaster, not understanding your pain, desires, or, and he has no grace, you never live free, and you're always living to please him. Maybe God is a cosmic version of a life coach. He's there to maximize your life that will shape you into some self-help yappy. I didn't say this. A guy called John Mark said this, John Markoma. Even if you dress it up and you call it following Jesus. And I think a lot of the gospel that we, that we see across the world today is like, make your best life. And sometimes Jesus says the opposite. Often Jesus says the opposite. He says, it comes to bring your life and life abundantly, yes. But actually, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come, there's going to be some tough moments that you're going to have to go through. But when you're persecuted, know that I was persecuted, and you'll find peace, grace, joy in that place of being persecuted when the tough moments come. What you think about God will shape the destiny of your life. I wrote down a few things. People list, and I'm going across all religions here. And it, what they believe about God dictates how they act. It says, some pick it. Who knows what picketing is? They go and stand out outside like funerals of, of men who've died in the military and they may have been homosexual. And it says, God sends hom- homosexuals to hell. And they're like, they're just this harsh people. They're just incredibly harsh. They don't understand the grace and the goodness of Jesus. They don't understand how powerful he is. And they've, they've lent on a, on a side of God where God is only out to come and judge and bring judgment. Some wage war. Some kill, some love, some hate. Some think God is a genie to, go, to, guard me, to grant me three wishes. And so often we can go to God and we think that God is just this genie in the sky. And if we do a whole bunch of good things and you haven't done something naughty that day, that somehow God's going to answer your prayers. That's not who God is. God is in his own category. He's utterly sovereign. He is utterly good. And he forgives. But he's also full of justice. There was a a survey by the Barna Barna Group, and they said this, for the first time, most Americans now depend on their own logic, tradition, or experience to formulate their beliefs. 100, 150 years ago, before the Age of Enlightenment, we used to go to the Bible, and we used to find who God is, and why why creation is the way it is, and why man fell, and it, it, it sent creation into utter disaster because of man's sin. Everything can go back to the point of man's sin. That's why we preach Jesus, because he's the only one who can forgive you of your sins. He's the only one that can make right the wrong in this world. Every problem we faced, whether it's sickness, disease, uh, people being killed in, in Syria, and just horrible stuff happening, the answer is Jesus. 
And I've got friends that are going into those war-torn areas and they're singing worship and they're giving and they're loving people and they're seeing people of other faiths come by their thousands to Jesus. I met a guy a couple of weeks ago where his, um, he leads a church in Greece and it's largely to the refugee people. He says, I don't know if it's Saddam Hussein's cousin or brother, but he ended up getting saved in his church. That's incredible. God is doing something. I listened to a sermon recently by Michael Eaton who's recently passed away, but he was just talking about the whole refugee crisis, that in God's, God's sovereignty, that's not a crisis, because there's people from Iran, from Syria, from all these different nations that are now coming to faith by the thousands because of this whole shift of the continents that, are, that is happening, whereas before, those, that was the 1040 window. We're in the 1040 window, unreachable. What is God doing? He's planting a lighthouse and then shining forth and Jesus is being proclaimed in this region. It's why theology is so important to us. It's why we can't have shallow thoughts about who God is. It's deep. The word theology is, is simple and it's, we can sometimes put it into academia, but it's basically this. Theo meaning God and logos word. It's about the word of God. It's understanding who God is. And, if, and I can tell you that your thoughts about absolutely everything is going to derive from the place who you think God is. If you're an atheist, you're going to live like there is no God, like there is no consequence, like we're just this burp in the universe that somehow happened by some years and years of evolution that, I mean, I was eating a, a, a rambutan. What's that? Is that from Sri Lanka and Southeast Asia? Who's had a rambutan before? It's the most unbelievable fruit. And I, I opened it up. Nushi taught me how to open it. Mangosteen, that's it. And, uh, and, I, and I ate this thing, and it was just the most incredible flavor. I'm like, wow, God is alive. God is real. He made a fruit that is so distinct from, he could have made just a banana and like that's the only fruit that we get. But through who he is, that just didn't happen by accident and he did it so we can enjoy it. God wants us to enjoy creation. He wants us to enjoy this thing, this place, this, this planet earth that he's placed us upon. But if we believe God who is both strong, powerful, he's not far but close. He lived amongst us, felt pain, suffering, joy and elation. He's full of grace, full of justice, and he's utterly sovereign, yet he's, a, he's an absolutely good father. That will reflect in our lives. And that is the gospel, that, that is the God that we're preaching, and that is the, the God of the gospel. That no matter what you've walked through this week, God is still good. And he'll comfort you in your time of mourning. We live in a broken, fallen planet, and there's stuff that happens to us that are not from God. But God will comfort us in those moments when those things happen. And that can only happen when we start to put him first. God. It says here, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. Now your soul uh, is, is, and I just wrote a few things down, it's your mind, will, emotions, your character, your passion, your desire, your, the activity of your character all comes from the place of your soul. And so often we can live our lives where we just go and go and go and go and go and go and go, especially in Dubai, where we never take a moment to still our souls before Him. And my desire going into this, why we've done this book on Psalms is not so we can always look forward to the promise, not so we can look at the Psalms that speak about the battle that is won and that's all great, but it's actually so we can quiet and still our hearts and realize that God is on the throne. That no matter what I'm walking through, my soul is refreshed by Him. 
And can, can we're going to give a moment at the end of this meeting just to, just to hang out with Jesus. Because yesterday I got into, I felt like I had a week where I didn't spend a lot of time worshiping and just in his presence. And I, I just, yesterday afternoon, I just got into my floor, had a little cool little carpet, put a pillow down, and I just worshiped. And I felt like God just came. And we need to have those moments in our lives. Otherwise, our hearts will always be, we have to get to the next thing, do the next thing. And there's tasks, and there's phones, and there's Instagram, and then there's Facebook. There's all these things that can rob us of that alone time where our souls need to be replenished. My soul waits. Who has patience? Legitimately. I don't. We went somewhere recently, I think it was Sri Lanka, and um, island time, am I right? So even waiting for food, I'm like, is this food ever coming? You know, we're in Dubai, and we, 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 sit, we sat down two nights ago, we went out for dinner with, with a couple in the church, and within five minutes, our food had arrived. We're like, this is service, this is what it should be. But then when you're in Sri Lanka or even South Africa, you, you place your order and we're like, wow, why have I waited 25 minutes for food? You know, like, and the thing is, we, we, we don't know what it is to wait. We don't know what it is to have that, that moment of patience. And sometimes, like a person like me who is fairly impatient, God wants to teach patience. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And my wife helped me a little bit on, on this wait, uh, the, just this word of wait. And the, the meaning of uh, wait is that remain in readiness for a purpose. It's to remain in readiness for a purpose. We wait on God because even though we haven't seen a fulfillment of a promise, even though we're waiting for the financial breakthrough, even though we're waiting for this thing, that almost doesn't matter. The, the power comes when we learn how to wait well in His presence. And we learn how to just draw from the King of the universe. It's like a child. We had our, our nephew... Well, Stala's nephew and niece over for Christmas, and um, they were like, they were running around in the morning, and they're like, we just want to eat, we just want to eat, and the Stala's sister goes, no, there's a big feast coming, you have to wait, and obviously the kids started moaning, and I think I slipped them a chocolate, like, I'm like an, an easy uncle, you know, just take it, take it, like a bag of chips, um, and uh, I haven't told Bianca about that, but um. And so they were waiting in this moment, and their mom just kept saying it because she knew a feast was coming. And sometimes we forget that we are children of God. That as much as we think we mature and we've moved on in life, sometimes God is giving us a pause. And He's going, wait. He says, I'm seeing the bigger picture. I'm seeing what I'm calling you into. I'm seeing the destiny. But He says, in this moment, I'm calling you to wait. And I think... We can, we can get frustrated in the waiting or we can use that waiting for the goodness of God. And we can learn how to just rest in that place and say, God, I know that you've called me to this. I know you've called me to great things and big things, but I'm going to learn how to wait. And I want to wait well, knowing that God is sovereign and, he, and he, is, he is looking after you. And He has the best purposes for your life. And I mentioned it before, but to those of you who are waiting on a spouse, single guys and girls, can I say to single girls, don't, don't settle for scraps. If, if the dude shows who he is before, he's not going to change after marriage. Uh, that's probably how he is. And if he's in his late 20s and 30s, only by the grace of Jesus, he may change. But can I, can I say that really girls don't, and we've seen it in pastoring this church and where girls rush into relationships because they feel like if I don't want to get to 35, 36, 37, I'm not married and then what's going to happen? And they get into panic and then you're like, look at Chanel. 
There was moments in her life, Chanel was on staff with us. She's 39, am I right? She's 39, just got married. I did their wedding two weeks ago. But I'm sure she's had moments where she's like, she's compromised on the guy and she's been really hurt and, and it's been painful. But then this knight in shining armor, Jean, came along and he, and, he, and he loves her for who she is. And it was just such an incredible wedding. And you just think, for me, that was just a picture of the goodness of God. And for girls, guys, wait for that moment. Now, don't be inactive about it, okay? Girls, don't distance yourself. Where else are you going to hear this, okay, other than church? Girls, don't distance yourself from guys. Guys, don't date with your own agenda. And don't uh, treat girls well. Treat them like they're daughters of God. Because if you don't, God's going to come and give you a smack. And that's never good. So, girls, wait for the right guy. Am I getting this clear? Is it coming across clearly? <laughs> Guys, don't stuff girls around. Rom's a big guy. Where's Jandre? He's normally a... Johan's a big guy. We can, we can hurt people, although we won't, because that's what we don't do in church. Um, what do we learn in waiting? We learn patience. We learn submission to God, His ways, and His timings. Don't, don't try rush God. Be in step with what the Spirit's doing and saying. I've tried to rush God in my life on certain things, sometimes even as simple as buying a car. And like I was, I was so close to buying a car. We had, we had like lined it up and everything, and I was going to take out a loan and this, and I was going to buy this car. And if I'd bought that car, God wouldn't have bought me a car. But somehow through his, actually he stepped in completely. I almost bought a truck from a guy in the church. I almost, I had this, I had this, I had the loan ready. I was just about to buy it. But something wasn't right in my spirit. And I was like, do you know those moments where you know it's not right, but you ignore it anyway? So I just ignored it, ignored it. And I was going to get this massive truck that would not fit into any parking space. Even though Stala was telling me from day one, I'm like, no, a truck is my inheritance. And, um. <laughs> I need a truck. Bruce even laughed at me. He's like, dude, you're going to be such a jock in the truck. Like, I said, I don't care. I'm going to get a big tattoo and a tap out shirt, and it's going to be amazing. <laughs> and um, and uh, I was just going to, sorry if that's one of you guys, but that's it's all good. I like tattoos, okay? So I will get one at some point. Um, <coughs> I lost my train of thought completely. What was I talking about? Yeah. So then God... Maybe a year later, bought me a car. And it's way beyond my wildest dreams. Some of you guys seeing me drive around, you're like, mm, the pastor's doing well. Eh? No, I was bought that car. So you can just, like, you can settle all that greediness. Um, what do we learn in waiting? God is orchestrating something for us. He's refining our character. He's showing us dependency, not independency. We're learning to be secure in Him. And not in the thing that you're waiting for. Because that's where the peace comes. That's where the joy comes. That's where, because sometimes when you get, I mean, I think Jim Carrey said, I wish everyone could be rich and famous and find out that it's not, not all what it's cut out to be. And I think that we have to realize that we serve the God of the universe, that, that even in the moments of waiting, we're waiting for the fulfillment of a promise. We're waiting for all of these things. God can totally satisfy your soul and your spirit. It says, in silence... It says, my soul, so we're only getting to one line here. I'm sorry, guys. That's just what it is. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. How often do you spend silent before God? In a busy city like Dubai. Dan, putting a mirror there, how often do you spend time in silence? And it's hard. I mean, I've, 
I've heard of pastors doing a three-hour silence twice a week. That is just crazy. Okay, like, I would struggle, but I'm, I'm slowly, you have, it's like exercise. You have to do a little bit by little bit by little bit, and eventually you can do a lot. But we have to learn to be silent, because it's in those moments that we actually learn to hear the heartbeat of God, which is what Scarlet is all about this, this year. It's learning to, uh, to hear what he's saying. He, he, he guides us completely if we, if we just still our souls before him. We're almost done. It says, from him comes my salvation. So you have the first line where, God, where you're waiting on God and you're learning so much and you're waiting in silence and you're like, God, when are you going to come? When are you going to come? And then all of a sudden he comes. And he brings this, this sense of salvation. And another other version says he brings victory. And I want to say this, I, I was listening to a message this week and this guy was talking, he says, there's two desires that I believe should be in every Christian's heart. Number one is that we get closer to Jesus, that we become more intimate with him. And that has been my cry, even as we go through the Psalms. God, I want to know who you are, not what some people say who you are. I want to know you. I was lying on my back yesterday and sometimes I'm expecting God to just come and lift me up and whatever. But the God of the universe, he, he wants to come and know us. He wants to know us intimately. So that's the first thing. And the second desire that from that place should come is that we need to spread the truth of the gospel. That this world is broken and the only cure and fix is Jesus Christ. Preaching Him, loving people through Him, praying for the sick, praying for those who, who, who don't know Jesus, pray, praying for your work colleagues, praying, going taking walks around the city, praying for the city, praying for those who are far from faith, praying for your family members. That is the desire, the two desires. And that for me is just that heart of salvation. Now, I mentioned this last week, but I'm going to explain a bit more. The word salvation in Hebrew, the root word is yasha. And where we, it's where we get Yeshua, which is where we get Jesus from, and Joshua. And it means, it means salvation, but the meaning behind it is wide open space, or to make the space wide open. So when we come into salvation, some pe- people think that it's just it becomes so restrictive what we don't actually realize is that sin is restrictive. Sin leads to death. The ways of this world will, see, will lead to death. The ways of focusing on, on Satan and his kingdom is going to lead ultimately to the place of death. Where Jesus is saying, I'm going to save you and I'm going to take you into a wide open space. And if we parallel the, the, the Old Testament where, where God led the people of Israel through the, through the, the river, uh, the Dead Sea, the Red Sea, through the Red Sea, and out the other side, he led them into Israel. Eventually, yeah, they were disobedient, so it took 40 years to get there. But eventually, they landed in the promised land, which was a spacious place, a land flowing of milk and honey. And we have to realize when God saves us, he saves us into a spacious place. Where he's redeemed us, he's forgiven us, he's made us child of God, we've been adopted. Our hearts have changed. We carry heaven with us. And so often I think as Christians, because we don't go pick up the Bible and, and spend time with Jesus, we live in a Christianity that is, that is sitting over there where God is saying, I'm calling you higher. It's not about not sinning. It's not about that. I've dealt with that and I'll help you walk through a road of sanctification. But it's focusing on Jesus. And as we do that, we enter into a wide open space. And there's an inheritance on every single person's life here in the body of Christ and out the body of Christ. God wants us to be effective there's a word sozo, which is uh, mentioned most of the time when you see the word saved in the New Testament. It's a Greek word sozo. And it's not just salvation from your sins, which is incredible in itself. But it's to restore, recover, rescue, ensure salvation, and it's to make you well. That when we come into Jesus, we are saved and the past is forgiven. 
I've been going way too long, eh? Okay. I'm going to just go to the last verse, and I might pick this up next week because I've missed out two pages. Verse 11, it says, Once God has spoken, twice I've heard this, that the power belongs to God, that you, O Lord, belong steadfast love. And I think the, the greatest revelation that we can ever have of Jesus is that he is, number one, he is powerful. He's, the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. Whatever you're going through right now, Jesus is there and he's powerful and, he, and he'll step in, but sometimes we have to wait for him to step in. But he is loving. God is love. He's full of grace. He's abounding in love. Can we stand? Teddy and team, we're going we're gonna to sing a song. And this song, and I did spend a bit of time on, on waiting. I really want you to just close your eyes, and if you know the song, you can sing along with it. But I really encourage you to just get into a place of just this posture of waiting on God. Because I believe that He wants to come and speak to us. He wants to come and minister to us. And uh, cool, let's just close our eyes and let's just pray together, and then we're going to go into the song. Father, we thank You for Your Word that brings life that changes us, molds us, makes us like you. God, and we have these, these seasons of waiting. And just one of the words that came through the prophetic in, in the, the beginning of the meeting is that there's people coming out with broken hearts this morning. And I truly believe that God is going to come mend hearts. As we wait on him, as we wait on him in the mystery and we don't understand some of the stuff we've walked through, but God is there with us. Thank you for listening. 